Section 1. The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, written by himself, by James Hogg. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Editor's Narrative It appears from tradition, as well as some parish registers still extant, that the lands of Dahl Castle, or Dahl Chastel, as it is often spelled, were possessed by a family of the name of Colwain, about 150 years ago, and for at least a century previous to that period. That family was supposed to have been a branch of the ancient family of Colquhoun, and that it is certain that from it spring the Coens that spread towards the border. I find that, in the year 1687, George Colwain succeeded his uncle of the same name in the lands of Dahl Castle and Belgrenon. And, this being all I can gather of the family from history, to tradition I must appeal for the remainder of the motley adventures of that house. But, of the matter furnished by the latter of these powerful monitors, I have no reason to complain. It has been handed down to the world in unlimited abundance, and I am certain that, in recording the hideous events which follow, I am only relating to the greater part of the inhabitants of at least four counties of Scotland, matters of which they were before perfectly well informed. This George was a rich man, or supposed to be so, and was married, when considerably advanced in life, to the sole heiress and reputed daughter of a Bailey Ord of Glasgow. This proved a conjunction anything but agreeable to the parties contracting. It is well known that the Reformation principles had long before that time taken a powerful hold of the hearts and affections of the people of Scotland. Although the feeling was by no means general or in equal degrees. And it so happened that this married couple felt completely at variance on the subject. Granting it to have been so, one would have thought that the laird, owing to his retiring situation, would have been the one that inclined to the stern doctrines of the reformers, and that the young and gay dame from the city would have adhered to the free principles cherished by the court party, and indulged in rather to extremity, in opposition to their severe and carping contemporaries. The contrary, however, happened to be the case. The laird was what his country neighbors called a droll, careless chap, with a very limited proportion of the fear of God in his heart, and very nearly as little of the fear of man. The laird had not intentionally wronged or offended either of the parties, and perceived not the necessity of deprecating their vengeance. He had hitherto believed that he was living in most cordial terms with the greater part of the inhabitants of the earth, and with the powers above in particular. 
But woe be unto him if he was not soon convinced of the fallacy of such damning security. For his lady was the most severe and gloomy of all bigots to the principles of the Reformation. Hers were not the tenets of the great reformers, but theirs mightily overstrained and deformed. Theirs was an unguent hard to be swallowed, but hers was that unguent embittered and overheated until nature could no longer bear it. She had imbibed her ideas from the doctrines of one flaming predestinary and divine alone, and these were so rigid that they became a stumbling block to many of his brethren, and a mighty handle for the enemies of his party to turn the machine of the state against them. The wedding festivities at Dalcastle partook of all the gaiety, not of that stern age, but of one previous to it. There was feasting, dancing, piping, and singing. The liquors were handed, around in great fullness, the ale in large wooden bickers, and the brandy in capacious horns of oxen. The laird gave full scope to his homely glee. He danced, he snapped his fingers to the music, clapped his hands, and shouted at the turn of the tune. He saluted every girl in the hall whose appearance was anything tolerable and requested of their sweethearts to take the same freedom with his bride by way of retaliation. But there she sat at the head of the hall in still and blooming beauty, absolutely refusing to tread a single measure with any gentleman there. The only enjoyment in which she appeared to partake was in now and then stealing a word of a sweet conversation with her favorite pastor about divine things. For he had accompanied her home after marrying her to her husband, to see her fairly settled in her new dwelling. He addressed her several times by her new name, Mrs. Colwain, but she turned away her head disgusted and looked with pity and contempt towards the old, inadvertent sinner, capering away in the height of his unregenerated mirth. The minister perceived the workings of her pious mind, and thenceforward addressed her by the courteous title of Lady Dalcastle, which sounded somewhat better as not coupling her name with one of the wicked. And there is too great reason to believe that for all the solemn vows she had come under, and these were of no ordinary binding, particularly on the laird's part, she at that time despised, if not abhorred him in her heart. The good parson again blessed her and went away. She took leave of him with tears in her eyes, entreating him often to visit her in that heathen land of the Amorite the Hittite, and the Girgashite, to which he assented on many solemn and qualifying conditions, and then the comely bride retired to her chamber to pray. It was customary in those days for the bride's man and maiden and a few select friends to visit the new married couple after they had retired to rest 
and drink a cup to their health, their happiness, and a numerous posterity. But the laird delighted not in this. He wished to have his jewel to himself, and slipping away quietly from his jovial party, he retired to his chamber to his beloved and bolted the door. He found her engaged with the writings of the evangelists and terribly demure. The laird went up to caress her, but she turned away her head and spoke of the follies of aged men and something of the broad way that leadeth to destruction. The laird did not thoroughly comprehend this allusion, but being considerably flustered by drinking and disposed to take all in good part, he only remarked, as he took off his shoes and stockings, that, whether the way was broad or narrow, it was time that they were in their bed. Sure, Mr. Colwain, you won't go to bed tonight, at such an important period of your life, without first saying prayers for yourself and me. When she said this, the laird had his head down almost to the ground, loosing his shoe buckle. But when he heard of prayers on such a night, he raised his face suddenly up, which was all over as flushed as red as a rose, and answered, Prayers, mistress? Lord help your crazed head! Is this a night for prayers? He had better have held his peace. There was such a torrent of profound divinity poured out upon him that the laird became ashamed, both of himself and his new-made spouse, and wist not what to say, but the brandy helped him out. It strikes me, my dear, that religious devotion would be somewhat out of place tonight, said he, allowing that it is ever so beautiful and ever so beneficial, were we to ride on the rigging of it at all times, would we not be constantly making a farce of it? It would be like reading the Bible and the jest book, verse about, and would render the life of man a medley of absurdity and confusion. But, against the cant of the bigot or the hypocrite, no reasoning can aught avail. If you would argue until the end of life, the infallible creature must alone be right. So it proved with the laird. One scripture text followed another, not in the least connected, and one sentence of the profound Mr. Ringham's sermons after another, proving the duty of family worship, till the laird lost patience, and tossing himself into bed, said carelessly that he would leave that duty upon her shoulders for one night. The meek mind of Lady Dalcastle was somewhat disarranged by the sudden evolution. She felt that she was left rather in an awkward situation. However, to show her unconscionable spouse that she was resolved to hold fast her integrity, she kneeled down and prayed in terms so potent that she deemed she was sure of making an impression on him. She did so for in a short time the laird began to utter a response so fervent that she was utterly astounded, and fairly driven from the chain of her orisons. He began, in truth, 
to sound a nasal bugle of no ordinary caliber. The notes being little inferior to those of a military trumpet. The lady tried to proceed, but every returning note from the bed burst on her ear with a louder twang and a longer peal, till the concord of sweet sounds became so truly pathetic that the meek spirit of the dame was quite overcome. And after shedding a flood of tears, she arose from her knees and retired to the chimney corner with her Bible in her lap, there to spend the hours in holy meditation till such time as the inebriated trumpeter should awaken to a sense of propriety. The laird did not wake in any reasonable time, for he being overcome with fatigue and wassail, his sleep became sounder, and his morphian measures more intense. These varied a little in their structure, but the general run of the bars sounded something in this way. Hick, hook, hoo! It was most profoundly ludicrous, and could not have missed exciting risibility in anyone save a pious, a disappointed, and humbled bride. The good dame wept bitterly. She could not for her life go and awaken the monster and request him to make room for her. But she retired somewhere, for the laird, on awaking next morning, found that he was still lying alone. His sleep had been of the deepest and most genuine sort, and all the time that it lasted, he had never once thought of either wives, children, or sweethearts, save in the way of dreaming about them. But as his spirit began again by slow degrees to verge toward the boundaries of reason, it became lighter and more buoyant from the effects of deep repose. And his dreams partook of that buoyancy, yea, to a degree hardly expressible. He dreamed of the reel, the jig, the strathspey, and the corrent, and the elasticity of his frame was such that he was bounding over the heads of maidens, and making his feet skimmer against the ceiling, enjoying the while the most ecstatic emotions. These grew too fervent for the shackles of the drowsy god to restrain. The nasal bugle ceased its prolonged sounds in one moment, and a sort of hectic laugh took its place. Keep it going! Play up, you devils! cried the laird, without changing his position on the pillow. But this exertion to hold the fiddlers at their work fairly awakened the delighted dreamer, and though he could not refrain from continuing his laugh, beat length by tracing out a regular chain of facts, came to be sensible of his real situation. Rabina, where are you? What's become of you, my dear? cried the laird. But there was no voice, nor anyone that answered or regarded. He flung open the curtains, thinking to find her still on her knees, as he had seen her. But she was not there, either sleeping or waking. Rabina! Mrs. Colwain! shouted he, as loud as he could call, and then added in the same breath, 
God save the king! I have lost my wife! He sprung up and opened the casement. The daylight was beginning to streak the east, for it was spring, and the nights were short, and the mornings very long. The laird half-dressed himself in an instant, and strode through every room in the house, opening the windows as he went, and scrutinizing every bed in every corner. He came into the hall, where the wedding festival had been held, and as he opened the various window boards, loving couples flew off like hares, surprised too late in the morning among the early braird. Hoo-bo! Fee, be frightened, cried the laird. Fee, rin like fools, as if ye were caught in an ill turn. His bride was not among them, so he was obliged to betake himself to further search. She will be praying in some corner, poor woman, said he to himself. It is an unlucky thing, this praying, but for my part, I fear I have behaved very ill and I must endeavor to make amends. The laird continued his search, and at length found his beloved in the same bed with her Glasgow cousin, who had acted as bridesmaid. You sly and malevolent imp, said the laird. You have played me such a trick when I was fast asleep. I have not known a frolic so clever, and at the same time so severe. Come along, you baggage you. Sir, I will let you know that I detest your principles and your person alike, she said. It shall never be said, sir, that my person was at the control of a heathenish man of Belial, a dangler among the daughters of women, a promiscuous dancer, and a player of unlawful games. Forgo your rudeness, sir, I say, and depart away from my presence and that of my kinswoman. Come along, I say, my charming Rab. If you were the pink of all Puritans, and the saint of all saints, you are my wife, and must do as I command you. Sir, I will sooner lay down my life than be subjected to your godless will. Therefore I say, desist and be gone with you. But the laird regarded none of these testy sayings. He rolled her in a blanket and bore her triumphantly away to his chamber, taking care to keep a fold or two of the blanket always rather near to her mouth in case of any outrageous forthcoming of noise. End of section one.